to episode 100 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 12th of October 2020. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelim. Hello. Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. So yeah, 100 episodes. Wow, we should probably have some sort of celebration. Mm. I know, let's celebrate with a perfectly normal episode. Yesterday, Hayden Barnes of Canonical fame wrote an article entitled, No, Microsoft is not rebasing Windows to Linux. And this comes off the back of quite a few pieces over the last few weeks that started with Eric Raymond's piece about how he thinks that ultimately Windows will move over to a Linux kernel. And a lot of people have run with that. It makes good headlines. It makes good clickbait. But Hayden, who is basically the liaison between Canonical and Microsoft working on Windows subsystem for Linux, he's pretty informed about this, and he thinks there's no way it's happening. I've I've spoken to Hayden a few times, obviously working at Canonical. He's a super OS geek. Um, You could talk to him about any kind of OS, really, and he understands everything down to the lowest common detail. Um, And so I I don't think this is any kind of bias one way or the other or because he works at Canonical. He obviously is close to this with uh, WSL. Um, and also, I you know, I kind of agree with him. That's not to say it might not happen in the future if, you know, Microsoft changes its mind. Um, but I, pre- I, I mean, I don't know anything, but um, I'd be surprised if when uh, Microsoft's really thinking of this now. I think the, the linchpin here that why would Microsoft change their their gold standard for backwards compatibility where you can run a Windows 3.11 program on a Windows 10 machine. Why would they throw away that those those whatever 20 30 years of of history just to save a few quid on on their own kernel? It just doesn't really make sense. Well, Eric Raymond's argument is that there'll be something like Wine, some sort of compatibility layer that will enable that backwards compatibility. I've read that ESR article a couple of times and the the meat of it seems to be that windows is becoming what he says windows becoming the proton like emulation layer over linux i i think that's just pure tinfoil hattedness if microsoft wanted to make windows apps part of linux then surely they would have supported the wine program before now um and they just haven't so i, I don't know it, it doesn't add up i also don't think you know, Microsoft has much history in doing this. I mean, it might do in the future, but I mean, it, it's kind of part of its business is built on its legacy, on its le- on keeping things as legacy products. I mean, look at the British government, you know, paying for Windows XP support. Um, you know, it, it doesn't really fall into that kind of framework that they've been relying on. Um, it, you know, not just for the sake of something being better, just just because it might be better and it might make things easier for them isn't a reason enough for Microsoft to do it. And, and ESR points to the fact that the Edge browser being ported to run on Linux is, in his words, the best evidence that this is some kind of um, conspiracy theory. I mean, it's, it clearly isn't. You know, the fact that Edge is built on Chromium and the fact that Chromium can be built for Linux, that's the story in its entirety. And it doesn't go any deeper than that. One thing that I think Microsoft should do, they won't do, but is to get rid of all that legacy in the back end, because I think that's what makes Windows be absolutely awful to use. All those horrible, horrible, archaic bits of code lying around the place. Like If they could start from scratch, which they're never going to, they could actually be a decent OS there. 
but it's the most frustrating thing to use in the world ever. I just I don't take, I don't like he says in point two that it's a long held fantasy that open source and Linux advocates, you know, it's a big fantasy of it. Why? Why would anybody want Microsoft <laughs> to run any of those things? It's just, it's just awful. Well, presumably because that would mean we had won and there'd be more people using Linux, the kernel at least, and therefore that would improve as a project. I think there are more people running Linux kernels in the cloud than there will ever, ever, ever be on the desktop, like by an order of magnitude. So by that measurement, we've already won. And phones. Well, yeah, phones, yeah. I think, yeah, that if, if that's how you measure success, then the, the battle is over. We have won. Yeah, we've won, but we haven't won the desktop. And we would do if Microsoft adopted the Linux kernel for Windows. Likely we wouldn't, though, because they'd be trying to use all their tools on top of it. And I don't think just having the Linux kernel there is really a victory in any form or sense, because how much of a victory is Android using the Linux kernel? Yeah, to some extent, there's obviously development work goes into it and stuff. But realistically speaking, does that help you get Photoshop running on Linux? No, not at all. But what about ARM and the inevitable rise of that? Wouldn't it make sense to move to Linux for ARM development because you are taking advantage of all the work that has been done there already? And yeah, there is Windows on ARM and they're making it better and better all the time. But that is a lot of investment required. Whereas if they went down the Linux route, then they could potentially save a lot of money, couldn't they? think quite the opposite because now they have the ability to lock people out because ARM processors are not seen as a general purpose computer. They're seen as like a customized utility. That's why they can lock down the bootloader so much of them. So I think that's the end story for us on those devices. Or, you know, that's just tinfoil, but hey. <laughs> it's funny that I actually came up with this theory. I mean, it's not, I'm not the first, obviously, but I'm the first recently, I think, before ESR came up with his piece i had said that for the first time i can entertain the idea that it could happen i don't think that it necessarily will i don't think that's very likely but maybe in 10 or 15 or 20 years it could happen and for the first time with edge coming to linux and with wsl it's starting to look like it could possibly happen to me but uh don't quote me on that or do quote me if it happens, but don't if it doesn't. <laughs> like maybe I could see, I could see it perhaps evolving. Maybe they'd have a separate product, you know, which is effectively a Microsoft Linux distribution, um, which is offered alongside its NT kernel windows. And maybe that gains some kind of traction on people who use desktops for whatever reasons, maybe to the point where the NT kernel based products become semi redundant or deprecated maybe azurix yeah <laughs> maybe because there's nothing stopping them supporting the legacy systems patching windows 7 and xp for governments and stuff mm. while moving away at the same time for the modern stuff to a completely different system but why though defies logic there are i don't know how many millions of uh windows installs out there and there are you know a a very insignificant number of Linux desktops out there based on like web browser um, OS detection, which is not accurate, et cetera, et cetera. But, the gold standard. Yeah. But, you know, it just, the desktop is not uh, a battlefront for Microsoft. It just, the, the number of uh, Linux users on the desktop compared to Windows users on the desktop, just there is no battle there. That has been done 
we use Linux on the desktop. We like using Linux on the desktop, but the normals will not use it. And Microsoft have very little to gain by claiming that extra 1% on top of their numbers. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, th- I think that uh, Hayden is right here, ultimately, that it's just not going to happen. He's He's got some very sound arguments. You should have a read of it. We'll link in the show notes. And yeah, hopefully this has put it to bed for another couple of years. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Learned. Sign up at automation.link and use the code late night Linux to upgrade and get 50% off a year's subscription to a new DevOps training site called Learned. The site covers the entire DevOps stack, starting with the basics of infrastructure as code, and includes almost eight hours of lessons on Terraform, Ansible, Jenkins, and loads of industry tips along the way. If you're interested in learning DevOps, take advantage of this offer by visiting automation.link and upgrade with 50% off with the code late night Linux. That's automation.link and the code late night Linux. So, Will, you have been checking out Piehole and AdGuard because you're sick of seeing adverts on your network. Well, kind of. I have been running DNS Mask on my network since before Piehole existed, and it has done a very good job. I downloaded some block lists off the internet, stuck them into DNS Mask as, as additional hosts files, and it's been great. And I've been really surprised every time I have gone away somewhere and I've used somebody else's Wi-Fi or hotel Wi-Fi or, you know, whatever, wherever I am, maybe even mobile data, quite how many adverts have popped up and and just spoiled my browsing experience. But managing my own DNS mask setup has become a bit tiresome of late because my son, my eldest son, is always on YouTube, and now he's just got into TikTok, and I'm old, and I don't understand how these <laughs> things work, and therefore they must be banned. <laughs> and so I started looking at an easy way to do it. Um, and I I was chatting to, with you guys, and Graham suggested I look at AdGuard because it had very, very simple switches, like toggle switches that you could just turn on and off for things like YouTube and things like um, TikTok. Now, the underlying argument here is why don't you just stop your children doing things like that? Why don't you just take their phones away? But I'm a terrible parent and I don't do that. I like the passive aggressive, just block it on the network uh, way of doing things. (laughs) Yeah, and if they can work out how to get around that, then fair play to them. Well, that's a very good point. Uh, yeah, bonus points for getting around it. I think if they if he can install some kind of VPN software and and make it work, then, then don't he give him any clues. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure he listens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So I thought I would check out Piehole first of all, um, and then Graham said, "Well, the the new hotness is AdGuard." So I thought I'd check out AdGuard as well. So got my Raspberry Pi out. One of my Raspberry Pis out. Stuck Raspbian on there, and I started off with AdGuard. Uh, very simple to install. So it's one Go binary, well, one binary written in Go, and it's got a DNS proxy in it, and it's got a DHCP server, and it's got a very nice web UI. And I think there's, well, there is an API that you can interact with it. And so there are a few kind of app-like um, experiences that you can install on phones that allow you a little bit of control over it. And I played around with that for uh, about a week, and then I tried Piehole as well for about another week, and I have decided that the winner is Piehole for the following reasons. 
I found AdGuard to be quite a lot slower than Pihole. I did a few tests, just running a, a DNS lookups or, or dig lookups um, over and over again for different hosts, and I found consistently that AdGuard was slower by tens of milliseconds, if not hundreds of milliseconds, over the course of sort of a few tens of lookups. So Pihole definitely has the edge on speed, as far as I can tell. And so you've just configured your router to point at it then rather than individual devices? So my router is just doing routing. It doesn't have any DNS or DHCP services running on it on there. It is just routing between the networks. And the Pi that is doing the DNS lookups is also the DHCP server. So any client that connects to my Wi-Fi network will get a DHCP address and uh, associated DNS services from the same machine. Right. So it's nice and centralized for you to manage then. Yeah, exactly. I've got one web interface that I can go to, and AdGuard has got some built-in services that it knows about, such as YouTube and TikTok, and gives you some very simple toggle buttons. You can just turn those on and off. But those services in AdGuard are hard-coded, so there's no URL associated with those services that says, here are the hosts that you should block when you turn this service on and off. It's a hard-coded list of addresses inside the source code in AdGuard. Uh, and so TikTok, for example, have got, I don't know, a 100 different servers and CDNs and all sorts of stuff that they use to service uh, the, the request. And so I enabled the TikTok block in AdGuard, and it did precisely nothing at all. <laughs> Just didn't work. So I went onto the AdGuard GitHub page, found where the code was, looked through the issues, and there are people saying pretty much the same thing. You need to add this server, this server, and this server in order for it to work. And that means that AdGuard is now out of date and will be until the next time they do a release. And until then, that switch is basically pointless. Whereas um, Pihole doesn't have the same the same setup. If you want to block a particular service in Pihole, you have to add a URL which points to a list of host names to IP addresses that will get blocked. And those can be hosted on GitHub. They can be hosted on your own personal server, wherever you want. And there are dozens and dozens of people that have got up-to-date managed lists that will block those hosts. So in that case i think pihole wins because it's much more dynamic you can you can make changes yourself now you could add those services to adguard if you wanted to but they've already provided these checkboxes to to do the job for you it just seems that they don't work just to be clear so both are both of these just applications essentially that runs a daemon they're not actually distros themselves then yeah, neither of them are distros. They both run on top of Raspbian. Uh, AdGuard is a single binary. As far as I can tell, it's a single binary. Go source code compiled down to a single binary. And in that are the DHCP server, the DNS server, and all of the gubbins, and all of the UI as well. Pihole is slightly different. It's a few different services. You've got um, Pihole FTL, which is their sort of API layer. You've got a rebadged DNS mask, which does DNS and DHCP. Uh, and you've got Lighty to do the web serving of the UI. Right. And that model, I don't know, it's kind of more difficult, but it's all installed as part of the same um, the same process. So I quite like the fact that it's different processes and I have different, I have more control over those processes. If one of them crashes and restarts, it doesn't take down the whole service. And does that come as like a um, extra repo or how does that get installed? 
Isn't it just a bash script? It is, yeah. It's a bash script that you pipe to, um, yeah, you wget and pipe straight to bash with sudo in front of it. And actually, no, you don't sudo in front of it. I think it asks you for your password. Good, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, that's fine then. <laughs> but it is very easy. Yeah, it is very easy, yeah. And there's probably a snap, but uh, I didn't, didn't look very hard. So the final point uh, in this uh, imaginary competition between AdGuard and PyHole is that AdGuard development is... Fierce. They're they're pushing out um, commits and things every single day, um, whereas Piehole seems a little bit more slow. So I don't know. I th- I think that AdGuard is is definitely more active, um, and may well be the future. But I think there are a few problems in there that they need to to iron out first, and then there's the the general overarching question of traceability, like who is it that's behind AdGuard? What are their ultimate goals? Are they trying to push you towards the paid service or are they just writing a piece of open source software for the good of uh, of everybody? Whereas Pihole, I think, are very open, um, perhaps more open than AdGuard. And the technology that they use is a, a little bit more um, see-through, if you like. I think it's really interesting um, what you said, um, and I certainly I'd never thought of I'd never tried to ban TikTok. The um, I ran Piehole for ages. I mean, it must have been a couple of years until the five point zero UI overhaul was released, which I think was earlier on this year, and which I really liked. And also by that time, for some reason, Piehole started to run really slowly. Um, so um, on my it's a Raspberry Pi two, I think. So I. I'd started to look at other things and I checked out AdGuard at the same time as I was looking at the Piehole 5. And the thing that's made me stick with AdGuard is that you can tag devices. So I could tag all of my daughter's devices and then write a filter rule to to basically, I just stop the internet after a certain amount of time for all of the devices that she has access to. And I couldn't do that with Piehole at the time. I really wanted to kind of, I think we might have talked about it before, but there's a, a horrible evil service called Disney Circle, which is like this app that's baked into Netgear routers and phone apps, um, where basically Disney or whoever filters things um, according to your children. And I think it'd be great if there was an open source equivalent of this. And AdGuard is getting that way a little bit quicker than Piehole was because I'd love to see that feature. However, what you said actually makes complete sense and it's interesting that the performance is better in Piehole. And I do agree with you that the it's a proper open source project, Piehole, whereas AdGuard is obviously a curated product by a company trying to sell a service which may not be as accessible in an open source sense or despite them both being open source. And I suppose if your kids work out how to spoof MAC addresses, then again, that's pretty much a win. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and that's a good thing about, um, I think, Will doing the um, DHCP stuff as well, because I'm not. With the DHCP stuff, you can filter on MAC address, but if you're not doing DHCP on the same device, you have to do it by IP address, and that's down Ah, to, that's even easier to spoof. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did like that feature of AdGuard where I could say that, for example, my desktop is not encumbered by the same rules as all the other clients on the desktop. Yeah, funny that. (laughs) (laughs) For reasons. I'm looking at Piehole to see if it can do the same thing. It does have group management, which allows you to create groups of IP addresses, add them to a group, and then I think you can apply a rule to that group specifically. But I haven't actually tried that out. It's certainly not as 
as easy to use uh, that feature anyway as as AdGuard is. But I will try that out and see what I can do with it. Okay, this episode is sponsored by TrueNAS from iX Systems. Go to truenas.com. TrueNAS and FreeNAS have now unified as TrueNAS, the number one open storage OS. TrueNAS uses the power and reliability of OpenZFS to bring open source economics to enterprise-grade unified storage with support for file, block, object, and app storage. You can use the free TrueNAS Core Edition or invest in a TrueNAS Enterprise system. Coming soon is TrueNAS Scale, which provides open hyper-converged infrastructure with support for Linux containers, and you can follow the development, try out, and contribute to this exciting project. Check out truenas.com and see how TrueNAS can support your next storage project, whether it's just a few terabytes all the way up to multiple petabytes. That's truenas.com. On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It really is appreciated. If you want to join those people supporting us, then latenightlinux.com slash support. There's details there. And remember, for $5 or more on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. And last time we asked for feedback and people to write in about stuff, and we've had quite a few people doing that, so keep that coming. Anything you want us to talk about or questions for us, just anything really, latenightlinux.com slash contact. It's all there. So several people have written to us asking about merch, what some people incorrectly call swag. Uh, Swag is free, merch is not. So we're talking t-shirts, mugs, hoodies, that sort of thing. We've never done that. We're 100 episodes in at this point, and people have often asked about it. I thought I would ask you guys about it first and the audience about it. The problem I've always had is either you've got to pay for like a managed service where they just charge fucking fortunes, like 30 plus quid for a t-shirt, and you get 50 pence of it as the publisher, or you've got to buy a load and then deal with distribution and going down the post office. And as Phelan knows, I'm not a fan of going down the post office. Yeah, still not got that pine <laughs> phone yet, have I? <laughs> no, no. So, I don't know. I've heard of, like, is it Teespring where you get a certain number of orders and then they ship and stuff? There's a few options here, but how much are people really willing to pay for a late-night Linux t-shirt? And how many of them are there? So let us know if you're listening to this. And and what do you guys think about this? Late night Linux hoodie in Run DMC style. Just putting that out there. <laughs> I'll buy one. Yeah, I'd, I would love to have one. But, you know, the, the, I've, I've done it before with Fast Talk Live. I got some cheap eBay ones printed with like shitty sort of peeling off vinyl and stuff, which is just not very good, really. If you want it done properly, it's really fucking expensive. Well... I have an anecdote to tell you here. Um, so EMF camp was cancelled this year for reasons, um, but they still had the offer up on their website that you could still buy some merch uh, and you know support them. So I bought an EMF 2020 um, T-shirt, uh, and it cost me only £10.59, pence, including postage. So I think that that is a very good deal. I don't know how much money... Um, EMF made out of this. I bought it because I thought maybe it would, you know, give them a bit of support. But ten quid for a t-shirt that seems like about the right sort of money to me. I know you can buy the t-shirt itself for probably pence, but that's unbelievable. Ah. Oh, I was going to make that joke. I was going to make <laughs> yes, that joke. I got you. Ten quid for an EMF t-shirt, unbelievable. Can't believe you paid me to that. Ten quid seems very cheap unless you buy a load of them and deal with the logistics of sending them out. 
which I'm just not going to do. Well, yeah, so this is, a, as far as I can tell, this is a complete managed service, and it's nothing to do with the EMF camp. They just, like, farm it out to these people, who I will not name just in case, uh, and then they print them and ship them out. I think I waited about a week, maybe a week and a half, before it actually got printed, so presumably... They, uh, they they sort of batch them up and then send them out. Mm. But as far as I can tell, this was not any uh, like pre-printed T-shirts. Maybe it was, which is why they're so cheap. I don't know. We should ask them. Yes, we should. But I suspect that that is UK only. Fair point. I don't know how to do it internationally. That's That's just a huge issue because it's one thing to do it in one country. But unless there's a company that has branches all over the world to deal with it, it just seems... I think they call what... What do you call them? A royal mail or something? Is that what it's called? We, so we used to do this with the next voice. Well, I used to do this with the next voice. <laughs> yeah, and you had to go down the post office. I did, and it's, I, I it was, it's hugely rewarding because you're sending stuff out to people who care enough, to, you know, to pay for this stuff. Um, but it's just, you just, and we would feel guilty for charging fifty or twenty pounds for a t-shirt, and I can't remember how much for a mug, ten or twelve pounds. We never made any money out of it and it used to take days and days of of me and the family actually on our kitchen table packing up stuff and sending some stuff would come back and that's before you even consider the tax yeah exactly so what i'm looking for if we're going to do this is something that is low effort not going to charge people loads and we're not going to get ripped off. We're going to at least make something. I don't know, maybe the easiest way is to just make a design, upload it, and let people deal with it themselves, and then donate if they want to. <laughs> they can 3D print themselves their own logo onto their T-shirt. Yeah, but, you know, we just put up uh, an SVG or whatever, and, and you know, high-res PNG, whatever, and then just people deal with it. Maybe that's the way to do it. Four graphics artists that we are. <laughs> oh, we could come up with something. Well, we've got the cool thing that Jesse originally envisaged and got his friend to draw, and then I put some dodgy font next to it. The uh, the penguin on the moon thing. I think that's pretty cool. Oh, that's a penguin. <laughs> I thought it was something doing a shite. hundred fucking episodes. <laughs> Speaking of Disney, do they not own Pixar? <laughs> it's nothing like it. There's no uh -huh. fishing rod. The original design that Jesse came up with had a fishing rod on. I said, we can't have that. We'll get sued. Why is there a fucking mouse looking in my, my office window right now? <laughs> Another thing that several people got in touch about was what browser to switch to. Because, let's face it, Firefox is not going to be around forever. And if it is, it's going to be a sad, slow death. And there is no answer. There is no alternative to a Blink-based browser, as far as I can see. Some people have suggested ungoogled Chromium. There's Iridium. There's a listener called John who got in touch about his browser called Next, next, N-Y-X-T. Um, there's Edge coming to Linux. I, I don't know. what What is the alternative that we're going to use? So, yeah, if there's any feedback about that, any suggestions, but serious suggestions that are actually going to stick around and be good and actually load websites that are not Chrome or Edge. Okay, this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Go to do.co slash LNL and get $100 credit with 60 days to use it. DigitalOcean offers VMs, or droplets as they call them, with full root access in data centers all over the world with super fast storage and networking. 
These droplets start from $5 a month and go all the way up to huge amounts of RAM and CPU power so you can deploy exactly what's right for your project. You can pick from multiple distros and start from a basic installation or pick from dozens of one-click apps and be up and running in seconds. You can add more block or object storage if you need it and DigitalOcean has managed databases and Kubernetes, great backups and snapshots and a really useful Teams feature. So go to do.co slash LNL and get started with your $100 credit. That's do.co slash LNL. All right, a quick KDE corner before we get out of here then. Uh, And a link has appeared that I had not seen until this very second. My KDE, what's this? Yeah, so this came up last week, but there's been a bit of an update, and I think it's live now. So they were having a lot of trouble. They used to have this identity.kd.org, which was a LDAP-based system for essentially single sign-on and things like that. Um, but they've they've personalized a bit more. You can have it linking, creating a page for your sort of public profile if you want it. And I think they're going to migrate everybody over to that soonish. Um, maybe not directly for all those accounts, so you can just sign up right now if you've got an identity uh, account already. Um so yeah, a bit of modernization on the back end stuff uh, and uh, worth a look if you're involved in any of the KDE stuff. Fair enough. And Plasma Mobile continues to be developed, it seems. Yeah, I know. I'd love to try it out, but I, I just don't have a phone that would uh, work with it. Um, yeah, they've been doing some work on uh, things like file dialogues. There was a, a lot of having to reinvent the wheel, so they're using the some of the sandbox applications couldn't use the uh, Plasma file um features so they generated a one that can be used by multiple uh, applications and that's xdg desktop portal they call it and then that solves that problem it stops people having to kind of reinvent that stuff again there's also a keyboard uh i don't know how you pronounce it whether it's mali it2 or malus 2 i don't know how the fuck <laughs> to pronounce it but um so that's quite good because there's a bunch of developers and also mario Scriptsguard from ubi ports is involved in that as well so it's good to see that sort of like well you know a lot of phones i feel like we have them as like islands onto themselves Mm. and it's kind of cool to see ubi ports and plasma sort of work together a bit on that yeah yeah that jumped out of me as well that's really cool to see yeah and uh, a few things like lock screen clock of you know kde clocks what what you gotta do i think you mean k clock yes just call it clock with a k (laughs) like why does the c have to be there because it does that's so stupid (sighs) clock you wouldn't understand and why is the w in k weather it should just be called kether (laughs) (laughs) well there you go and uh there's a few more videos that you can get as well uh from academy um and bush and shah did also a video uh plasma on mobile for the linux plumbers plumbers conference recently as well so a few things to check out there quite cool and plasma 5.20 is going to be released probably tomorrow yeah, I got the updates to frameworks, which usually comes out before it. Um, so that's quite cool. Um, looking forward to that. There's a few things in there. I mean, to be honest, probably won't affect me mainly. If you start off with a new desktop install, you'll get the icon only. Yeah, horrible Windows style. Yeah, I, I'm, to be honest, I'm not a fan because I have about three or four separate multi tabbed console windows open. So I actually need them to be their yeah. own thing. So I, I don't, I'm not keen it, but hey, some people are. And that's what you get with KD. You get choice, not someone telling you how to use your computer. Um, there's new on-screen display bubbles. Uh, there's highlights in the sentence change, which is quite cool because if you make a bunch of changes or you see new changes come in, it's nice to have those highlighted to you and things like smart um, hard drives will be able to alert you. And as always, better Wayland support, which they keep saying, but yes, that is good. 
Yeah, including the ability to run multiple GPUs. So you can use your internal GPU for one screen and then a couple of displays from your graphics card or whatever, all on Wayland. That's pretty cool. Mm. Right, well, we better get out of here then. We'll be back in a couple of weeks when who knows what we'll be talking about. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. Thank you.